Wendell's World in Sports. Be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on, discuss today. Maybe not completely in the world of sports, but there's some things I want to get into. I hope people are doing well. I hope everybody is getting through this. I hope everybody is doing the right thing. I hope everybody is being responsible. I hope everybody is following the experts on what we're supposed to do to fasten, to hasten the virus and get back to normalcy somewhat normalcy is much we can get back to it so i hope everybody is doing that man you know i mentioned before in my last podcast that i was going to get into a little nba basketball which is exactly what i'm going to be getting into because i just saw this report from brian windhorse talking about the nba owners are now starting to be a little pessimistic about the opportunity of possibly coming back for the 20 for the 2019 2020 nba season Again, who knows? I know that I read something according to ESPN, Adrian Wojnarowski, that the NBA owners and executives first believed that the league would be returning sometime in June with the best-case scenario amid of the coronavirus. The Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban, said he doesn't expect the current NBA season to be canceled. There was a situation where the CEO of the Houston Rockets was talking about, don't worry about it, everything is going to be fine, we're going to get this season in. If need be, so now we're taking a look as the death toll, at least here in the United States, continues to rise. The outlook for NBA basketball returning sometime in June or July is looking bleaker and more remote by the day. So, I'm, I don't know, man. I'm at the accord right now where we just maybe need to shut this stuff down. And I understand, look, if I'm an owner, whether I'm a billionaire or not, look, I understand the owner's point of view. I understand the player's point of view. I'm not getting paid right now. Okay, you know, I'm a guy who is right now living sort of kind of paycheck to paycheck or when things were going right for me working for the Clark County School District as a substitute teacher, going up the Mesquite a lot, getting a whole lot of extra money and doing that and being on a consistent basis, supplementing my income with my rides up to Mesquite and dealing with that community up there that, hey, you know what? If they would have told me yesterday to come on back and just take your chances, I would have been like, sure, man, let's go. Let's do this. Number one, I'm sick and tired of being locked up and cooped up. Number two, I'm sick and tired of not knowing where my next meal is going to come from in terms of a paycheck. So I can understand the NBA owners talking about, hey, man, you know, I understand that we can't get the season started today or tomorrow, but let's see eventually what we can do. Let's keep the glass half full to see what we can do about starting the season and trying to find different directions and different avenues and different ideas thinking outside the box to see what we can do to start the season. They were following maybe the examples of what the Chinese Basketball Association was doing in terms of they were going to start the season, I believe, about a week ago or something like that. And they were going to have a situation where half of the teams were going to be playing in one part of the city and the other half was going to be playing in the other half of the city. And they were going to be very diligent in seeing what they could do to keep everybody safe and away from contracting the coronavirus. But... The government for sports and recreations and such shut it down because they weren't 100% sure that they could stop 
that they would be guaranteed that another outbreak amongst the players wouldn't uh, occur. So the NBA was taking a look at that, and they were just kind of like, damn, they were going to kind of follow that blueprint by the Chinese Basketball Association to see what they can do in terms of maybe getting some ideas for them here in the United States when it would be to the point in this country where they could start playing basketball games, not of course to a not of course to people in an arena, of course, but maybe doing something to where they could have half of the league in one side of Vegas and the other half and another side of Vegas in terms of one end of the strip, the other teams and the other end of the strip, or maybe the Western Conference teams could be in the Mandalay Bay and the other Eastern Conference teams could be in the MGM Grand and they could play their game somewhere in one of those locations. So the NBA was kind of looking toward the Chinese Basketball League and I guess quite sure other uh, leagues out here in this country, whether it be the NHL or Major League Baseball and such, to see what they can do to kind of guide their way back to playing the games by taking a look at what the Chinese Basketball Association was going to be doing. But now, since that is no longer the case, they are flying blind once again on what they can do when they can get this league started once again. I'm, I'm at the point, man, let's just cancel the season. Let's just cancel the season. I'm not in the mood for any asterisks. I'm not in any. I'm not in the mood for any yeah buts. I'm not in the mood for what ifs. Let's just end the season. I mean, this is a pandemic. This is something where it's totally, totally coming out of left field in terms of this is something that's never happened in not just the sporting world, but I guess maybe in this country's history for the past what 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, other countries have dealt with Ebola, and other countries have have dealt was something like this before, but for us, we have to go back to, what, 1812, 18, I'm sorry, 1912, 1918, somewhere around there, to find something as dramatic and, and life-altering as what we're going through right now. I mean, this is a situation that no one, well, I'm sorry, this was a situation where no one in the position that they were in could have foreseen this type of dramatic change to our everyday routine. Of course, the asshole that's in the White House right now, he might have had an inclination, might have had an understanding, might have had a thought or something about this was coming down the pike and you could have kind of gotten ourselves ready for this. But, oh, no, he didn't do that. But that's another topic for another subject. But uh, I'm just like, let's shut this down, man. I'm ready just to, like, look, let's put our heads down. Let's try to get through this. Let's try to do what the experts and everything want us to do. And then, I don't know, man, when everything is deemed somewhat normal, by the experts who follow these pandemics and viruses and such, then we can go ahead and start dealing with the everyday, trying to get back to some type of normalcy. I just don't think that in a country where we're living right now, where the death toll is going up and up and up in cases of these of getting of people getting these viruses is going up and up and up. I'm sorry, man. The last thing that I think people should be worried about is when the next NBA basketball game is going to play be played or when can Major League Baseball start, or when can we resume the NHL season, or when Major League um, the MSL can start, all of these things. Wimbledon has just been canceled for the first time in a long time. This is just something, man, look, for a certain generation, this is your 9-11. For a certain generation that's going through this right now, we went through 9-11, my generation and before. We went through the 2009 uh, crisis, you know, the economic crisis of 2009. We went through a whole lot of shit, man. And this is what we're going to have to deal through. This is what we're going to have to deal with. This is going to be down in the history books. This is going to be going down 
in terms of what they're going to be teaching in the high schools and middle schools and elementary schools in the next 15, 20, 25, 30 years and beyond. So this is just something that we got to get through. And the main thing that we need to do, we can't be distracted. We can't be thinking about, well, you know, I, I think that when we as a country start hearing things like, hey, you know what? They're thinking about starting the NBA in June or don't worry about the NBA is going to be finishing the season and we'll get through this. And people are starting to talk about, you know, the um, uh, NFL football and the NFL still going to hold this draft on April 20th and they're still going to come out with the regular season schedule at a certain time when they're going to supposed to be starting on time. Man, how do we know any of this? When people start hearing this stuff, all of a sudden it goes to the assumption that, oh, you know what? This pandemic that we're going through right now, this virus that we're going through right now, it's really not that bad. You know what? We've been locked up. We've been sub-quarantined now for two weeks or three weeks. We're, we're, we're kind of on the other side of it. We're cool. We're good. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Normalcy is just around the corner, if I could use all those cliches. And no, it's not. So let's just start giving our society, at least those who love the NBA, at least those who follow the NBA, at least those who, I guess, through some weird way are following the effects of the pandemic of this virus by when is the NBA season going to commence? Because when you start hearing June, it's almost like, well, okay, all we really need to do is, like I said, get through April and everything will be past the worst and then we'll be ready to get on with regular life. No, 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 no. When the NBA is talking about June, they're being optimistic. They're not talking about the glass just being half full. They're talking about the glass being overflowing. So let's just cancel the NBA season, man. Let's just go ahead and just do what we need to do. And when you know what I'd love to do? Start the season in start the season on Christmas Day. Now people were talking about that was one of one of the maybe slight advantages of possibly going ahead and finishing up the season maybe in August or September with the fact that there's no way if you finish the season in August, you finish the season near the start of fall, that you're going to turn around in a couple of months and start a whole 82-game schedule um, with just only a four- to eight-week break. So there was a situation where if they still want to get into those 82 games, and you know these NBA owners are going to want to get in those 82 games because they need to recoup some of the money that they lost, not just from games that are missed, but we're also talking about from television and missed playoffs. I mean, we're speaking about if the NBA goes down, that the NBA truly, really does not come back. We're speaking about the NBA losing anywhere between $500 million and $1 billion as a league. So when they do come back, I wouldn't be surprised if the NBA starts begging and pleading that maybe for the 2020-21 season, is there any way that we can play 150 games instead of just 82? Is there any way that we can play double headers? We can play one game in the morning, get the first crowd out, and then play in the afternoon or the evening and bring the second crowd in? I mean, is there any, <laughs> is there any possible way that we can do this? But, uh, yeah, man, that's what it is. That's what it is. I say, look, just go ahead, cancel the season, and, look, I'm just as disappointed about this as you are, man. I wanted to see if the Milwaukee Bucks could go ahead and finish off the season they have the best record in the league right now. They were 1-1 one one in the season series against the best team in the Western Conference, the Los Angeles Lakers. I was looking to see that the Bucks and the Lakers play in the NBA championship to see who the best team is in NBA basketball. I was interested to see if LeBron James and Anthony Davis could 
turn around the Lakers like he did, like he's been doing so far, and lead them to a championship and giving LeBron his fourth NBA championship ring, which would place him closer to Michael Jordan in the debate of who's greater and who's the greater basketball player. Many people talk about LeBron going three and six, and that's one of the reasons why he couldn't smell or sniff uh, Michael Jordan's shoes. Well, you know what? The situation like this, we're talking about him winning a championship in Cleveland, winning a championship in Miami, winning a championship in L.A. So that would be something right there that maybe those who want to bring the argument that LeBron and Jordan are closer than you think and maybe the possibility say what? That LeBron could be a better basketball player that maybe had a better career than MJ. That's one of the things they could have brought up. Well, that's not going to be happening. But I'm just interested to see exactly what's going to be happening with the NBA as we go forward. But as of right now, man, it just looks like that the league is, I don't know, looks like it might be starting the realization that uh, they're going to be shutting down and they're going to be shutting down the 2019-2020 NBA season, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, Wendell Wallace, I'm your host, hello, so glad that you could be with us. So I was reading something about some of the ideas that the NBA had, say for instance, if they were to come back in June or July, the summer, August, and some of the things that they were talking about was if they did come back, the first thing that they would do situation where the NBA only has 17 games remaining. So instead of having those teams finish up the season by playing those games, and, you know, even when the NBA does come back, I mean, there's no way that you could go back to a normal schedule. The arenas are going to be empty. I mean, travel is going to be dicey. So it's a situation where if they would come back, as I mentioned before, it would have to be in one location. I don't know. Maybe they could hold these teams or franchises and players on an Indian reservation or maybe somewhere where the epidemic or the pandemic of the virus is not that strong or maybe hold him in self-quarantine like I mentioned before in somewhere like Las Vegas or maybe Atlantic City even though that might be a little too close to what's happening as far as the boom of patients and problems that are happening with this virus but for the most part as I mentioned before bring them back to Vegas put them in a hotel put them in one of the casinos and finish up the season that way with these guys being highly self-quarantined but Adam Silver was talking about man if I could go ahead and just have some type of in-season tournament you know and Silver when he was discussing the possibilities of the NBA what direction they were going to be going in the future before all of this fell on our heads was the fact that he was a strong proponent of these in-season tournaments and I almost compared them to college basketball where you know, in the preseason, before conference play starts in college basketball, you have these conference or you have these tournaments, whether it's the one out in Maui, whether it's the Battle for Atlantis, uh, Madison Square Garden holds a couple of uh, preseason tournaments, the Coaches Classic and the Wooden Classic, and you have all of these in-season tournaments before the regular season starts in college basketball. Well, Adam Silver, to try to spice up what was happening in the NBA with the low TV ratings and one of the arguments for the in-season tournaments was the fact that, hey, you know, most years the NBA parody is not their thing. For the most part, you knew, well, you know going in that there are going to be super teams throughout history. If you take a look at the NBA, whether it be the Boston Celtics or Bill Russell, going back even farther than that, the Minneapolis Lakers, with George Mikan, and then you move into a dull period in the 1970s where you really didn't have 
that won dynasty, so to speak. You had the Lakers in 71-72 winning 33 straight games and winning the championship, and then you had the New York Knicks, and then you had the Milwaukee Bucks, and then you had the Boston Celtics winning a couple of championships, and then you had the Washington Boulay, and then you had the Seattle Supersonics before you moved into the 80s and had Bird and Magic revitalize the NBA by having that Boston-LA rivalry to which Magic won five championships, Bird won three championships, the bad boy Detroit Pistons also won two championships. So you're taking a look with the exception of the Philadelphia 76ers, the resurgence of the NBA was based on dynasties, was based on the best team in the West for the 80s for most of the decades being the Los Angeles Lakers and the best team in the East for most of the decade being the Boston Celtics. And for the most part, you have, what, five times, three times? No, three times you had the Celtics and the Lakers meeting in the NBA championship. Of course, Boston winning their championship with Bird when they beat Magic in seven games in the 1983-84 season. And then Magic and the Lakers getting their revengeance over Bird in 84-85 and finally putting them away in 86-87 before going ahead and repeating for the first time since the Boston Celtics did it with Bill Russell back in nineteen in the late 1960s. And, but for the most part, with the NBA, you know that there is a good, there's a majority of teams that are not going to win the NBA championship starting on day one. You know that year after year, about 80% of the teams, even before they play a game, you know that they're not going to win a championship. You know that they're not going to be serious contenders for a championship because, as I mentioned before, whether it was the San Antonio Spurs or whether it was the Los Angeles Lakers with Kobe and Shaq, whether it was the Michael Jordan Bulls of the 90s where they won six championships in eight years, whether it was moving forward now the Miami Heat with LeBron and D. Wade and Chris Bosh or any of these dynasties, any of these super teams, whether it be built by the draft or built through free agency, you knew that the majority of these teams going into the season were not going to have a chance to win a championship. So Adam Silver says, well, let's then kind of give some of these teams who haven't won a championship in, oh, I don't know, forever. When we're speaking about maybe the Sacramento Kings, who's never won an NBA championship, whether they were in Kansas City, Omaha, or whether they were in Sacramento, let's give a team like, say, for instance, the uh, Indiana Pacers, who haven't won a championship since they were in the ABA. Let's give a team, say, for instance, like the um, like the Atlanta Hawks, who haven't even who haven't won a championship. Who let's give a team like the Utah Jazz, or let's give some of these teams that aren't very good, the Washington Bullets, for instance. Let's give some of these teams who are rebuilding a chance to say that they won something. You know, the fact that, okay, we might not win a championship. We might not win the Eastern Conference. We might not do any of that stuff at the end of the year. But you know what? Hey, at least we won this midseason tournament. At least we won this midseason um, NBA tournament that we were in. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Silver was talking about comparing that to soccer. Football, shall I say. European football. Not soccer, as we say in the United States. Soccer. No, I'm talking about football. How you have these leagues, the strongest leagues in Europe and other countries who love the sport of football, go ahead and have these in-season tournaments. Well, Adam Silver is trying to take a page and trying to take that idea and bring it over to the NBA. My only deal with that is, is A, how in the hell are you going to get the players to really give a damn about this? How in the hell are you going to get the fan base really, really, you know, hyped about this? 
do you know, I mean, for college basketball, because I mentioned before college basketball, like the preseason tournaments, like the Maui Invitational is a huge preseason tournament. It really is. The kids get to go over. Number one, they get to go to Paradise in Hawaii. And the Maui Classic always has two or three or four really good teams in it in terms of top five, top ten. The Coaches Classic at the beginning of the year, the Jimmy Valvano deal where they're having games fighting for cancer, where that's where the proceeds are going from, from the fans attending the games. And they have some really good teams. You had Duke playing Kentucky, and you had Michigan State playing uh, you had Michigan State playing somebody. Well, they had they had Michigan State and Kansas, and then Duke and Kentucky or something like that. But you had the four number one teams in the country starting off their season by playing each other, and it's like whoop de doo, big wow, the battle for Atlantis. You had North Carolina before they fell off a cliff where they were ranked, and Michigan when they were uh, making their charge up the charts. I mean, they were down there battling in one of these preseason tournaments. Well, that's great and everything, but just like, I mean. You know, I mean, at the end of the day for college basketball, would you rather win the Maui Invitational or would you rather win the NCAA Tournament? Would you rather win the Battle for Atlantis or would you rather make it to the Final Four in the NCAA Tournament? Do you even know who won the Maui Invitational this year, last year, the year before, two years ago, ten years ago, five years ago? Same thing with the deal over at Madison Square Garden, their tournament that they have. Do you know who won? I mean, hell, even conference tournaments at the end of the season. I mean, it's great and it's nice if you're taking a look at some of the low and mid-major conferences where there's only a one-team bid and they get to go to the NCAA tournament and get their asses kicked in the first round by 40 points by the number one seed in their prospective region. But for the most part, when you're taking a look at the NCAA basketball program and you take a look at these conference tournaments and you take a look at the conference champion, the tournament champion of the ACC or the SEC or the Big Ten or the Pac-12, does anybody really care? Does anybody really know? I mean, is there any constellation that, hey, we might not have won the NCAA tournament, but we won the Maui Invitational and we won our conference tournament. Isn't that wonderful? It might be great for the coach because that's better leverage for him to get more money on contract negotiations. But for the most part, who cares? And segueing that over to the NBA, I mean, if the Sacramento King wins some in-season basketball tournament in the middle of, say, December or February and miss the playoffs, does anybody care? Is the fan base going to be excited about that? Is that something for the fan base in Sacramento to say, hey, you know what, for, I don't know, the eighth year in a row, we didn't make the NBA playoffs, but you know what, we won the... We won the IBM, CBA, FBI, whatever conference, uh, NBA in-season tournament championship. Woohoo! I mean, is our fan base really going to do that? I'm guessing the answer would be no. So I was always like weary when Adam Silver was talking about, yeah, we're going to have an in-season tournament to kind of spice up the regular season. I mean, it's almost like, you know, the NIT or the CBI in college basketball. Does anybody really care? Who wins the NIT? If you ask the winner of the NIT, would you have rather made it to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA or playing the NIT? What do you think the majority of the answers are going to be from the coaches and the players? Of course, they're going to say, man, I want to make the NCAA tournament. For those who won the CBI, which is an even lower postseason than the NIT and the NCAA tournament in college basketball, you think there's any like whoop-de-doo-dah, whoop-de-day, put up the banner in their rafters? For someone who wins the CBI, not unless they're from a really low D1 school, but then you 
bring that over to the NBA? Is anybody going to be hanging a banner in Indiana or hanging a, hanging a banner in San Antonio or hanging a banner in Phoenix for winning a tournament in February? Is that fan base is going to be like amped? I mean, are you going to get extra people coming to the game to see the finals between the Phoenix Suns and the Indiana Pacers for the, I don't know, Holly Farm, Jesus Christ, son of a gun, in-season NBA basketball tournament? No, of course not. And do the players even care? No, of course not. So, you know, I end up silver. I mean, that idea is like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't go with it. But that's one of the things where in the NBA, if they did come back at the beginning of the summer or whatever, if the NBA was going to resume to kind of get the cobwebs and the rust off, that would uh, they would have some type of in-season tournament. So I guess, well, if the Utah Jazz won the in-season tournament this year and then lost to the Houston Rockets in the first round of the NBA playoffs in three games, they could say, well, hey, at least, you know, we won the uh, ending of the season tournament that they had. Isn't that something? Well, Utah's crazy about basketball and their NBA basketball, so that might mean something. But I would say the large majority of the teams, it wouldn't mean Bo Diddley. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us just riffing about what's happening in the NBA. The thought of the NBA not playing out the 2019-2020 season and talking about if they do go forward, what's going to be happening, some of the ideas that the commissioner and the league executives and some of the owners are talking about it. For instance, they do have the opportunity to come back and play this season. I mentioned before the in-season tournament and the desire going forward once everything turns back to normalcy for the NBA to have some type of in-season tournament not happening. But also another one that the NBA is considering moving forward is having a shortened playoff series that they come back and play this season. The playoffs would be best of five instead of best of seven. Of course, situation like that. I always say that, you know, I like the best of seven because it really gives you the opportunity to see who really is the best team. And one of the arguments for having a best of five instead of best of seven is because you would have the opportunity for more upsets. You take a look at what happened a few years ago or years ago when you had the Seattle Supersonics. Yeah, we're talking about that far ago. Seattle Supersonics with Detlas Shrimp and Sean Kemp and Sam Perkins and Gary Payton and George George Carl at the head coach. And they went up against the number eight seed led by the Georgetown greats of Dikembe Mutombo and Reggie Williams and LaFonzo Ellis, who played at Notre Dame. But that was a 1-8 playoff situation. And I remember that playoff because the first two games, Seattle Supersonics, who were the number one seed, I think they had the best record in the NBA, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be wrong because that's the year that Michael Jordan and the Bulls were still going strong. So let's just say they were the number one seed in the Western Conference, and they were strongly, highly favored to win that series over the number eight seed Denver Nuggets. And the first two games, the the Supersonics blew them out. I mean, it wasn't competitive. It wasn't even close. So you're thinking, all right, they'll they'll go back to... Denver and handily put things away in game three, but no, Robert Pack went wild for Denver. They won the next two games and came back to Seattle. And of course, we all know that iconic moment where my man from Georgetown University, the Hall of Famer Dikembe Mutombo, falling to the ground in ecstasy while holding the ball and going, yeah, as the Seattle 
Supersonics walked away dejectedly after losing that series. So those iconic playoff moments, people argue, really don't happen that much in, say, seven-game series as they do in five-game series. My only deal is that, yeah, you know, we like upsets. We love upsets. David versus Goliath, we always love that little notion until it actually happens. You know what? We want the top teams in the NBA to make it to the NBA Finals. We want the superstars of those teams to make it to the NBA Finals. We want the LeBron James and the Anthony Davises playing with the Los Angeles Lakers. We want them in the Finals. If we can't have them in the Finals, then we want the Los Angeles Clippers, the number two media market Los Angeles area in the NBA Finals with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. We don't want the Utah Jazz in the NBA Finals going up against someone like the Indiana Pacers because they went ahead and beat the big market, high television rating squads of the Boston Celtics or the well, Miami doesn't have any true ratings. But you know what? You get what I mean. Some of the more basketball, big city markets. The NBA wants those guys in the NBA Finals, man. This ain't football. Football, you can put any team in there. You can put any team in the Super Bowl and you're going to be getting close to 100 million or over or over 100 million people watching that game. And the NBA ain't happening. If you want a successful NBA Finals, if you wanted to maximize the most out of an NBA Finals in terms of viewership and interest, you better have LeBron James somewhere, somehow, some way in that Finals. When Golden State was rolling and rocking, you wanted the Golden State Warriors somehow, some way with Klay Thompson and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. You wanted, especially Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, you wanted those guys in the NBA Finals. You didn't want, want them losing in the first round to the Minnesota Timberwolves. No fucking way. So while people always talk about, yeah, one of the great things about the playoff series being the best out of five, that it would garner more possibilities of an upset. No, I don't think so. The NBA wants the best teams in the NBA Finals. They want the marquee players, and they want the marquee teams in the NBA Finals. And most of the time, that is better situated when you go with a best of seven series. But because in this situation, if the NBA comes back and they're dealing with this coronavirus, well, then yes, of course, they're going to want the situation of having a best of five so they can hurry up and get the season over with. With the best of seven, we're speaking about all the rounds in the NBA playoffs. I mean, that's almost a half of a season right there for some teams. Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I'm checking the current standings. And as I mentioned before, there's there's whispers coming out of the NBA circles that there is a strong possibility now that the NBA owners are coming to the realization that, you know what, our best plans to finish the season, they might not be, they might not come to fruition. And we might have to shut this down. And it's like, I'm looking at the current standings today. And I'm taking a look at the Western Conference and the top eight teams. I'm thinking about the Los Angeles Lakers being number one and the L.A. Clippers, the second seed, being five and a half games behind. And Denver with the three seed. Utah, four seed. The fifth seed is Oklahoma City. And then we round out with Dallas at number six. Excuse me, Houston at number six. Dallas at number seven. Memphis at number eight. And still in contention. You have a situation where Portland, New Orleans, and Sacramento, they're all tied for ninth place. And they're three games back of Memphis for the number eight seed. And still the San Antonio Spurs. Hey, look, man, the San Antonio Spurs were great Popovich. They've been qualified to go to the NBA playoffs for like 22 straight years. 
that unbelievable streak is in jeopardy. When do you think that streak is ever going to happen again? They're only a half game behind Portland, New Orleans, and Sacramento for ninth place, which means they're only three and a half games back of Memphis for the number eight seed with three games, excuse me, with 18 games to go. So that's a situation where, you know, it would have been interesting to see what was going to be happening with the bottom with those bottom feeder teams trying for the playoffs. If Memphis with job Ramant, uh, Rod could have hold it, held on and got the job done. So that's not going to be happening this year. I take a look at the Eastern Conference. The best record in the NBA, the Milwaukee Bucks, are sitting in first place, and six and a half games behind them are the Toronto Raptors, followed by the Boston Celtics, Miami Heat, Indiana Pacers are at number five, the Philadelphia, the disappointing, the bewildered Philadelphia 76ers, are sitting in the sixth seed, Brooklyn number seven, Brooklyn, and the eighth seed is Orlando. Washington is nine, about five games behind. They stink, they stunk. No need to really talk about them. So, you know, I was just taking a look, and there were some really good scenarios coming into the final part of the season. Was Zion in New Orleans, were they going to be able to catch Memphis and move into the eighth seed? Was Portland and Damian Lillard, were they going to be able to do something and come back and catch Memphis? Was San Antonio again going to try to do whatever they could to try to get that number eight seed and play the Los Angeles Lakers? It was interesting. It was going to be an interesting season, but you know, now it looks like that might not be happening. And moving into the possibility of playing in the playoffs, you know, one of the teams that I thought could benefit from the schedule being disrupted like this and then coming back two or three months later once the game stopped in on March to come back in June or July and finish up the season and go to the playoffs. One of the teams I thought could best be suited for a strong run if that happened would have been the Philadelphia 76ers because, yes, they've disappointed. And, man, the situation where they would have to play on a neutral site would negate the fact that they're the best home team in the NBA. When you take a look at their record this season, 29 and two at home before the season ended. Damn, 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 damn. You would have, you would have gotten Ben Simmons back, hopefully, because he was dealing with a back issue. You would have had Joel Embiid. Now, what type of shape Joel Embiid is going to be in if they decide to have the NBA resume back in, you know, in the, in the summer, we don't know. We have no idea, but, Philadelphia, if everything came correct, and the fact that they got Ben Simmons back, Philadelphia could have been that team that could have been that surprise team. Yes, they sting out loud on the road, but at home they're unbelievable. But we don't know what they're going to do in a neutral site. So everything is just everything is just nutty, man. The 2020 NBA draft, who knows? I mean, initially that was scheduled for June 25th at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, but you know that's not going to be happening. So. Now there's talk about pushing it back to August or September. What about the NBA Combine? What about some of these guys who have de declared for the NBA draft who might be on the fence in terms of shall I stay or shall I go back to school? We don't know. I mean, they can only get some type of minimal feedback. I mean, they can't go out and work for teams. They can't go ahead and do anything, not just because of the coronavirus is recommending that the experts are recommending that these guys stay at home and stay away from any type of human contact but also the fact that we don't even know if they're going to have a schedule. We don't even know if, they're, if the NBA is going to be continuing to play. And that should be, for the owners, the majority of what's, what they're going to be focusing on. I mean, the NBA draft, yes, you have to do your due diligence, but for the owners are concerned, what can we do 
to recoup some of this money. But it looks like, again, this is a situation where the NBA for the 2019-20 season, in the history books, the way things are going right now, I'm going to put my money on the history books showing NBA champion none because of this coronavirus. Wendell's World is Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Man, so we've been talking about the NBA, I've been wanting to get into some stuff about the NBA, where it's going to be going, what it's going to look like moving forward, the fact that there's a real possibility that the conclusion of the 2019-2020 NBA season is not going to happen because of what's happening with the coronavirus. So, moving forward, and I've gave my thoughts and opinions and feelings before about what I would like to see as far as the NBA moving forward in terms of a schedule. If there was somehow some way, because my fear might be, and it's really not a fear, but what I was sort of kind of hoping was that if the NBA would come back sometime in the summer, conclude with the playoffs and finish it up, say, in, I don't know, August. Now you're talking about the matter of the day. You're talking about free agency. You're talking about the NBA draft. You're talking about the league moving forward. The fact that if it did end the season, this 2019-20 NBA season, in the summer, there's just no way with everything that they would have to do, the business that would have to be taken care of. I mean, what do you do with the NBA Summer League? Of course, it would be canceled, but it's everything that involves the offseason concerning the NBA. Some of that, a lot of that would have to be either delayed, moved up a little bit, or just canceled altogether. So you're going to be talking about the league that normally starts the season sometime in October. You're going to have the finals in August or July. And then with a quick turnaround, you're going to have a full 82-game schedule starting at the regular time. Nah. So my hope was if they were going to come back and conclude the season and have the finals be in the summer, then you could go ahead and start the season, move the season up to more towards the beginning of the year 2021. Then you would be talking about a situation where now we're going to be starting the season where I think I've always felt would be the best time to start the season for the NBA, to have December 25th be the beginning of the NBA season. We always, I've always talked about the joy of Christmas and the fact that the NBA has that day all to itself. Football is not happening. College football isn't happening. College basketball is not really happening. The NBA has always had Christmas Day to itself to showcase its best games. You're talking about four or five, six games where you can have your superstars, where you can have your marquee franchises, where you can have the best franchises and the best teams in the league that you're going up against each other. So there was, there's no competition during that day on Christmas to go ahead and have those NBA basketball games. And I thought that would be such a great way to start the season. That that would be a great way to kick off the season and automatically give it instant momentum 
if you had on opening day, you had the Lakers play the Clippers, or you had the Bucks play the 76ers, or you had the Boston Celtics play the Miami Heat, or if you had the Denver Nuggets play the Utah Jazz. I mean, we're just talking about on, uh, almost on a regional basis. If you had the Portland Trailblazers play the Golden State Warriors or something like that, where you could just kick off the season starting with LeBron and Steph Curry and all these superstars, boom, there you go. And... For the most part of the, or at the beginning part of the season, you don't have to worry about competing against the NFL. The NBA is starting its season normally right when the football season is starting to become even hotter. Because, of course, in September, everybody, of course, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people, the majority of sports fans in this country, the fever is hyped and they're ready and they're good to go. And I can't believe it. football starting in September. When you have the first couple of games, when you have that Thursday night football game to start the season, and then week one and week two, everybody is super excited about the NFL season starting in September. And then by the time October comes around, okay, we're still into that nice little pace that they have, but the enthusiasm goes down a little bit because we're really into the season. We've got our consistency back, but then when you start talking about getting into week 10 and 11 and 12, when a lot of these football games actually mean something now. I mean, the NFL and really also college football, when they're starting to come out with the BCS and who's going to be number one and the rivalry games start happening and we start talking about who's going to be in the top four for the playoffs. And so football, both the NFL and college, just supersede everything. And this is the time when the NBA season starts. And the NBA, I think, after the first maybe week or so, gets kind of lost because everybody is so focused, focusing their their attention on the impending NFL playoffs and the BCS and the college football for their final four for the college football playoffs. So I've always said, man, forget the NBA season starting in October. Move that bad boy up to Christmas. And by the time the NFL season is over in February, then you have... You know, February, you have March, April, May, June, July. You have you have basketball. You have the NBA. And look, if I rather would I rather go up against the NFL or Major League Baseball? Would I rather go up against NFL or March Madness? I mean, there's just certain pockets of the time during that schedule. Yeah, you would be overshadowed by the first weekend in March Madness, and maybe the first week opening day for Major League Baseball, the first couple of games. Yeah, sure, but. It's a much better proposition for me if I was running the NBA, if I was an NBA owner, to try to go up against baseball and try to go up against that rather than go up against college and pro football. It doesn't work for me. So one of the things that I was thinking about and hoping that if the NBA again resumed the schedule and they finished the games in the summer, finished the season in the summer, that this would this would precipitate a season starting later, that would be a continuation. We wouldn't just go back to the old ways of starting the season. We would be always starting around the end of the year, which for me is great because like I mentioned before, I give my attention to the NBA for the first week or so, the first five, six, seven, eight games, and then that's gone, man, until Christmas. I mean, for the most part, once November, a little bit into November hits, I'm all about football. I'm all about college football. You can listen to my podcast. I'm all about college football. I'm all about the NFL. I really don't touch or really even get into the NBA until basically the NFL season's really over. And then 
most of my speaking points and most of the things I want to talk about are dealing with the um, with the college football playoffs or dealing with the NFL playoffs. The NBA really doesn't take center stage. So it would be, I think, it would behoove these guys just to move that schedule up and get it done going that way, man. Put that bad boy, put the season, start the season during the Christmas time. For, for me, I would prefer to have it on December 25th to start the NBA season if and when they come back. Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So going forward, man, what is the league going to look like when everything is said and done with this pandemic? When everything is, I don't know. I don't even know if you can call back to normal because I don't even know what the new normal is going to be about. But when everything is back to where hopefully the fans can start going back to the arenas and whatever happens, happens to where we can live a somewhat normal life again. What exactly is going? What exactly is the NBA going to be looking like going forward? I discussed that in the previous segment before, but then take a look at the basketball-related income, and we're talking about the CBA guarantees that the players receive about forty-nine to fifty-one percent of the league's revenue. So we're just assuming that even if we're talking about a split of one point two billion in losses in the NBA, or the NBA loses say a billion dollars. In NBA revenue, that would translate, let's just say that the players are guaranteed 50%. Well, if the league is going to be losing a billion dollars, that means the NBA players are responsible for the loss of about $500 million. That's a $500 million hit to the players. And when we're talking about the NBA free agency, and we're talking about some of the top-tier free agents, no, this is not the year where you have the LeBron James or the Steph Currys or the James Harden or the Giannis Adenokupos or any of the big-time marquee players coming up for free agency. You're not going to be dealing with that this offseason concerning the free agencies, but still you have 70 players who could be available whenever the offseason starts. I mean, we're talking about players like Fred Van Vliet, Joe Harris, Danilo Gallinari, Davis Bertans, Montrez Harold, guys who might not be all NBA superstars or anything like that, but we're talking about the Toronto Raptors moving forward when Kyle Lowry decides to finally either go somewhere else or when Toronto start to rebuild or re, rejuvenate with youth. Fred Van Vliet is going to be that guy who's going to be the starting point guard. Joe Harris is the guy who's been an integral part of what's going on with the Brooklyn Nets. Now, he didn't show up in the playoffs last year for what he needed to do, which is shoot three-pointers and make three-pointers. But still, here's a guy who's been part of that core of Paris LeVert and others that have moved the Brooklyn Nets up from the absolute bottom in the depths of despair in the NBA to where they're a playoff team. And who knows now with the acquisition last offseason of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, where that's going to go moving forward. So Joe Harris has been an integral part of that foundation that was built in Brooklyn. Danilo Gallinari is a guy who could help out plenty of teams. I mean, he's doing he's doing a great job so far with Oklahoma City. He's been doing it. You know, he's a solid NBA player. He's a solid starter for an NBA player. He could be that guy. That could be your third or fourth option on a team that has legitimate chances of winning an NBA championship. Davis Bertans coming over from the San Antonio Spurs to the Washington Wizards. It's a guy who's shown that he's one of the best three-point shooters in the game today. He's going to be valuable, especially as we know how important the game is in terms of three-point shooting is, is, uh, is, is talked about. Is the Davis Bertans could be that guy. Montrez Harold, Harold, a guy. Perfect small ball center five, a guy who, a junkyard dog type of player. I mean, he's a guy also who's going to command a nice penny in free agency. So 
When we take a look at the basketball-related income and we take a look at the hit that the league is going to be taking and some of the ramifications if the league does not come back, and regardless if the league comes back, the, you know, the NBA owners are going to take it in the shorts in terms of losses for this season. What does that mean? What does that mean for NBA free agency? Well, especially when we're talking about, damn, the NBA salary cap is projected to go, go down, of course, because of what's happening. So you're looking at the NBA free agent, uh, excuse me, the NBA salary cap being somewhere like around $109 million. Some are projecting the cap won't drop lower than $109 million. But uh, we don't know. We don't know about that. So there's going to have to take some negotiating. So what are we going to do about this? Because say, for instance, if you're someone like an Anthony Davis, who is clearly a max player, and that max player, that super max player, gets 30% of the of the salary cap, well, then, you know, you're talking about 30% of $110 million or $109 million. If you're Anthony Davis, no, nah, man, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to opt out of my contract. I'm not going to assign a long-term deal. I'm going to wait until the salary cap goes back up, and that way I can go ahead and sign the uh, Supermax or the Max contract and get more money from that 30% of the salary cap. If you're taking a look at guys who could opt out of their contracts, now all of a sudden, if you're DeMar DeRozan who's making $27 million, if you're Gordon Hayward who's making close to $32 million, if you're Andre Drummond who's making $25.5 million, if you're Tim Hardaway Jr., who's making somewhere close to $18 million. Are you going to opt out of that contract when you see that the salary cap is only going to be $109 million? No, of course not, especially if you're someone like a DeMar DeRozan who you think on a $109 million contract he's going to get anything close to the $27.8 million he made this season and going forward what he can make? No, of course not. He's going to opt in and get that money because if he does opt out, he ain't going to get close to that money. If you're Gordon Hayward, who was kind of looking before the whole pandemic happened with the coronavirus, the guy who was like, well, you know what? I'll opt out of my contract, and I might not make the average of $32, $33 million that I'm doing right now, but I can get more years added to my contract and maybe not sway too far from the money that I'm making now, but I can have more longevity in terms of how much I'm going to be paid over the length of the contract that I can negotiate. You think he's going to do that now? With a salary cap of $109 million? I don't think so. I wouldn't think so. The same thing with Andre Drummond. I mean, I'm sorry, Andre. It sucks that you might have to be staying in Cleveland, but are you really going to risk opting out of a contract that's going to be paying you $25 million to hit the free agency market when the salary cap is that low? I don't think so. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly what happens with the NBA Moving forward, man. But yeah, everybody's taking it in the shorts. Everybody is going to be financially hit by this. The owners and the players. And now, although the experts are saying, for those who follow the league, and cor uh, correctly so, is that there's just going to have to be some discussions. The players, the CBA, the Players, um, the so uh, players Association and the owners are going to have to get together and see exactly what's going to be done, what's going to have to be done for the players to try to lessen the blow? Are they going to be putting a lot of their salary? Or, I mean, Adrian Wojnarowski was talking about um, players putting 25% of their salaries in escrow to where they can get it later. Who knows what's going to be happening? But, yeah, man, moving forward, again, the NBA is just really going to be taking some interesting stuff to see exactly what happens 
as we move forward for the 2020-2021 season of Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I want to switch real quick before we go to break. I want to give just an Antonio Brown update. I remember on my last podcast when I was talking about whether Antonio Brown was a guy who was going to ever have a chance to play in the NFL again, and I was talking about one of the things that he's doing, one of the things I thought at the time that he's not doing, that he shouldn't be doing is, instead of this idiot up here being on social media and holding up stacks of money to his ears and going after Julio Jones about who's the best receiver in the game and doing all that social media bullshit, what this guy should be doing with the money that he has, take that $60,000, go out and get yourself a camera crew and have them follow you around and film you and document you working on your game, working out, being a good father, being a good person, being a good human being, helping old ladies across the street and getting cats down from trees, going to church and praising the Lord, doing whatever you need to do, going to a homeless shelter, doing some type of charitable work, do anything humanly possible that can erase some of the stigma some of the garbage that is being attached to your name because you've been acting like a straight, unadulterated asshole. And of course, you can start again by going out and showing these NFL teams that are working hard and catching passes, doing all those types of things. That's what I was talking about. Well, I guess he has been doing some of that. There was some video coming out of him in Florida along with Lamar Jackson and his cousin Marquise Hollywood Brown showing them working out. The video was posted on Jackson's Instagram account and it shows Antonio catching 50-yard passes and other passes from the passing tree and showing them working hard. And, you know, that led to speculation that, oh my goodness, hey, could this be a situation here where Baltimore might be a destination for Antonio Brown? If you really think about it, Baltimore could use another wide receiver. I mean, let's take a look. We have a guy who won the MVP last year, a young, budding superstar, a quarterback, and Lamar Jackson for your squad. He completed 265 passes last season, but only 115 were completed to wide receivers. Six different wide receivers on that team. And 150, oh, excuse me, 115 completions for 1,419 yards. Michael Thomas caught 149 passes all by himself for New Orleans. So you're talking about the completion to the wide receivers. That's the lowest total in the league since the 2012 Kansas City Chiefs. So, hey, why not bring in Antonio Brown? 125 passes for Lamar were completed to tight ends, three different tight ends. But if you take a look at the leaders in yards and catches and targets and touchdowns, it wasn't Marquise Brown. It wasn't any of those guys. It was Mark Andrews who was a tight end. The leading receiver for Baltimore was Brown, who caught 46 passes. Mark Andrew caught 61 passes. So, what do you go? What do you do? So, would that be any type of deal where, hey, maybe possibly Antonio Brown could get a look-see from the Baltimore Ravens? I say, fuck no, hell no, hell no. If I'm the Baltimore Brass, I know all about, I know enough about Antonio Brown. So that talent might be there, but I'm not going to ruin that young man as far as the quarterback we got, we got right now with Lamar Jackson. Keep him the fuck away from that guy. I'm telling you right now, if I'm Steve Pashati, the owner of the Baltimore Ravens, if I'm Greg Roman, the offensive coordinator for the Ravens, if I'm John Harbaugh for the, the head coach for the Ravens, I am a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit concerned that Lamar Jackson is hanging around Antonio Brown. Get 
him away from Antonio Brown. It's nice to see him working out, even though the video that they shot. Hey, guys, social distancing. I'm quite sure you guys are pretty confident in the fact that none of y'all have the coronavirus. But are you sure? Are you 100% sure? Have you guys been tested? If you guys haven't been tested, could you please get the fuck away from each other? It's cool that you guys can work out with each other. Just keep that social distancing, please. Damn. It's little things like that. It's the cluelessness of Antonio Brown. And that might be small. That might not be, for most, a big deal. So what? Who cares? But damn, man, it's just the fact that, again... You are trying to get back into the NFL. You are on the outside looking in. And one of the reasons, it had nothing to do with your ability, Antonio, on why you're not employed with an NFL franchise as a wide receiver. People's perceived lack, people think that because of your lack of maturity, professionalism, common sense and such, that's the reason why your behavior is the reason why you don't have a job in the NFL right now. Not because of your ability. So again, if I'm Antonio Brown, I'm doing everything, man. I am dotting all I's and crossing all T's. I am making sure that at least I'm going to give myself the opportunity. At least when I present myself again, the new Antonio Brown, and introduce myself to NFL owners and GMs and presidents and all those types of things of these football operations, the new Antonio Brown is going to be so diligent in making sure that everything is perfect. Every single detail is perfect. So if that's the case, which should be the case for Antonio, yeah, maybe the majority of folks out there who see that picture of you, Lamar, and your cousin Marquise up there hugging on each other in terms of, you know, boys taking pictures and such, People might, must, people might say, no big deal, what's the big deal, this, that, and the other. But again, we're talking about Antonio Brown. Hey, you know what, coronavirus, I'm going to keep my distance, this, that, and the other. It shows, it shows awareness. It shows maturity. It shows that you've been following exactly what's been going on. And I hate to say it, but the haters are going to take a look at that and be like, no, mm-mm, no thanks, no thank you. And if I'm Steve Bashotti, the owner of the Ravens, if I'm John Harbaugh, the coach of the uh, of the team, that's one of the things I bring up, saying, man, we don't want that guy in the locker room. Is it trivial? Is it bullshit? Is it nonsense? Is it you looking and scrapping and trying to find things for, for making excuses on why Brown isn't going to be introduced or isn't going to be welcomed on the team to try to have an opportunity to earn a spot on the team? Is it is it those things? Yeah. Probably, but still, just those small things add up to big things when you've had Antonio Brown in your locker room. You can ask the Steelers, you can ask the Patriots, and you can ask the Oakland Raiders. It all just doesn't jive. I'm staying away if I'm the Baltimore Ravens with Antonio Brown. In the upcoming draft, they have nine picks, including five in the first three rounds. Go out and get yourself a wide receiver or two or three. Stay away from Antonio Brown and keep Lamar Jackson away in terms of just anything as far as professionalism is concerned. Throw passes to him, but in terms of everything else, keep the fuck away from Antonio Brown. He is bad, bad Leroy Brown news, bad. Wendell's World in Sports, a podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Dallas Cowboys have signed defensive end Alden Smith to a one-year deal. 
Ah, no, you sit up there going Alden Smith, Alden Smith, Alden Smith. Damn, that sounds, that name sound familiar. Well, he hadn't played in the game, Smith hasn't played in the game since he was suspended in 2015 because of legal and substance abuse uh, issues. He's in the process right now seeking reinstatement to the NFL now. Normally, I would sit up here and talk about what are the Cowboys doing. This is a joke. This is horrible. This is terrible. But you know what? I'm not going to do this. I think this is really a decent move, a no-win, a no-lose situation for the Dallas Cowboys. The deal, as sources told ESPN, is worth up to $4 million. He's going to earn a base salary of $910,000 and $40,000 every time he is on the active game day roster. So that could total up to $650,000 just based on that incentive right there. And he also has incentives incentives totaling $2 million for sacks. And if he gets eight sacks, he gets $500,000. And $1 million if he gets 10 sacks. And one point five for 12. And $2 million for 14. So you can see how all of that stuff adds up to the possibility of him making $4 million. I just say, that, you know what, again, hey, it's a one-year deal. No big deal. The base is 9-10, so if he doesn't work out, they cut him again. And this is a possibility for Alden Smith to turn his life around. All right, you know, what What the heck? This is not a great Hardy situation in terms of him doing damage and harm to anybody else, another human being, a female for that matter. But this is Alden Smith. Let's see if he can overcome his demons. It might be a bad idea for Alden Smith to try to get past what plagued him before as far as his personal demons are concerned. But you know what? Hey, being in Dallas, but I mean, you know what? If you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. I mean, there's liquor stores and there's a way to get fucked up and boozed up if you're living in Portland, Oregon, or if you're living in Indianapolis, Indiana, or just away from that, if you go to any other NFL city, if you go to any other place, what? Try to find me a place in America that doesn't have a liquor store somewhere. So, you know, hey, if Alden Smith wants to get fucked up and he hasn't overcome his demons and he still has an alcohol problem. I don't care where he's at. He's still going to be able to find alcohol. He's still going to be able to get fucked up. He's still going to be able to drink. And if he had to learn his lessons, you, you don't have to be in a certain city to be dumb enough or to have poor judgment to get into a car while you're inebriated and drive. So for the Dallas Cowboys, hey, it's a win situation for them. He either does well, works out well, or he's a, member of the team, doesn't cause any trouble. I mean, I'm quite sure most people, when he was with the Oakland Raiders and when he was with the San Francisco 49ers, the teams that he played with before, I'm quite sure his teammates would say, Alden is not a bad guy. He's not a bad locker room guy. He's not a cancer. He's not a bad influence. He's not a he's not a locker room lawyer. He's not a guy who's going to be divisive. I mean, this is just a guy who just couldn't keep his drinking in check, and because of that, he's been out of the league now for four years. So after a four-year lay layoff at the age of thirty, let's see if the uh, let's see if he has anything left. Good move, decent move, quality move. I would say for the Dallas. I wouldn't say quality or decent or good, but it's a it's a no lose situation, and it's a deal that the Dallas Cowboys taking a chance on with Aldis Smith. Hey, I have I find nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Stick. Mama, come here quick and bring me that licking stick. Hold on. 
Wendell's World is Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on that I want to talk about today. Of course, when I say Wendell's World in Sports, I also want to get a little bit into what's not happening in the world of sports. Just kind of tell you a little bit what I've been doing, you know, as far as self-quarantining, making myself useful around the house, doing things to keep myself occupied, making sure that the boredom of the days and the weeks that pass by are not going to get to me too much. Of course, I'm going out doing my Ubering, make sure that I can pick up a couple of dollars, making sure that financially I can keep my head somewhere above water before falling under or not falling under until I find out, until you find out, until we find out as a country, as a world, exactly where we're going to be going, where we're going to be headed, what the plan is going to be at the end of the month of April. So for me, basically, I've just been doing a lot of keeping myself occupied, need to get a little bit and do a little bit more exercising, but uh, we'll get to that. I'll get to that as we, as I mentioned before, and as you know, that uh, we're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything until April 30th. We here in Las Vegas haven't been completely shut down just yet, but still, you know, we're going to see what, we'll, we'll see what happens moving forward. But there is one thing that we're going to be doing that I'm going to be doing if, you know, for instance, the NBA is not going to be coming back for a while. The college basketball season is already over. There's really nothing going on in college football. Everything's been shut down. I know the draft is coming up for the NFL. and we'll, I'll be getting into the draft, of course, before the April 23rd time when it starts. But just as of right now, what I'm talking about, this is almost this segment in the next segment is mainly about me in terms of, you know, something that I just watched and I just want to get out and I want to give to you. I want you to touch it. I want you to taste it. I want you to feel it. I want you to absorb it. I want you to kind of take in everything that I'm saying. This is almost like Professor Wallace teaching time just for a little bit. But I'm going to try to do it with some enthusiasm, which I always do. I'm going to try to do it with some entertainment, which I always try to do. I'm going to try to do it with the understanding that when I'm done speaking about this, that at least you can respect the knowledge and my passion that I have for what the subject matter that I'm going to be talking about. No, it's not about sports. And as I mentioned before, when I speak about sports or when I do this podcast, the majority of the time I am going to be talking about what's going on in the world of sports. I am going to be playing the hits, shall we say, about what's important in the NFL and in the NBA and in Major League Baseball and boxing and MMA and some other things concerning sports. All of those things which resonates in the sporting world I will always talk about. But just on a few occasions, especially in a time and situation like this where there's really not any sports going on right now, the fact that, you know what, for the first time, maybe in a, in a little bit, I really have the opportunity, and I'm still following what's going on in the NFL with the drafts coming up, and I fall and following what's happening, and the, if anything comes up in the NBA and such, I'm always trying to keep my hand on the pulse of what's happening in those sports. But for the most part, without the reasoning of turning on the television to watch an NBA game or an NCAA basketball game or, if worse comes to worse, a hockey game or now that the season's over, a football game or anything like that, it's now really given me a chance to, I don't know, kind of catch up on 
some of the shows and some of the documentaries and some of the TV programming that I really don't get to really focus on when sports are being shown or when sports are being, you know, televised and such. It's my duty to you and to everybody else to be as knowledgeable as possible when I'm speaking about what's happening in the world of sports at the current time and for me to kind of rely on what other people's thoughts and opinions are or maybe not have firsthand or from watching a basketball game or I'm watching an important sporting event that I want to talk about on my podcast. It's very important for me to actually, I don't know, watch the game as the foundation for my thoughts and my feelings and opinions about the certain teams, the certain coaches, the certain players, the the game, the way it went, what it means, what it means going forward, what it means for the winning team, the losing team, what player played well, what player didn't, all of those things that I like to speak on, all of those things that I like to give to you in an entertaining, passionate way. I mean, it's only natural, of course, that I actually, oh, I don't know, watch the game. But again, since those games are now postponed because of this pandemic, it gives me some opportunities to do my other thing, which is watching a lot of documentaries, watching a lot of shows. I'm just one of these guys who just love documentaries, man. I mean, you give me the opportunity to watch a movie or to watch a documentary, I mean, nine out of ten times I'm going to be watching that documentary. Now, of course, it depends on what we're talking about. I, some of my favorite movies, of course, if you're talking about 48 Hours and Shawshank Redemption and the, the game with Kurt Douglas and anything Morgan Freeman or Michael Douglas or Denzel Washington is in, you know that I'm going to be red hot to watch that. Uh, but for the most part, you know, I'm a documentary guy. I love watching the crime and justice shows. I love watching the documentaries about serial killers. Sorry, I love watching, and I, when I say watching documentaries about serial killers, I'm talking about in the way of they actually get caught. I don't like so much the unsolved mystery shows because I hate the fact that I'm watching a show where someone has admitted, committed a, an atrocity on somebody, a murder or a rape or something, and they've never gotten caught. That kind of bugs me. That kind of irks me. I like the shows where the criminal profiler comes in they dictate or they talk about the crime itself they catch the guy and the guy is either dead or rotting in jail somewhere so those are the type of crime and justice programs that i like to watch the documentaries or the serial killers that i like to watch or the the professional criminal profilers that i like to watch give it up for roy hazelwood and john douglas and those type of wonderful fantastic unbelievable criminal profilers but one of the things that I also love watching is music. I'm a music guy, man. I love music. I'm telling you, man. I just you 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 hit on my YouTube channel. You sign into my YouTube channel. It's all about music. It's all about what's happening as far as the music with the Four Tops and Otis Redding and Sam Cooke and James Brown and Aretha Franklin and Anita Baker and of course Pete Rock and CL Smooth and Heavy D and Big Daddy Kane and Pete and um Rock Cam and Nas and most Def and Red Man and all those guys, man, Wu Tang, all of that, all of that music, you know, heading on back. I love classical music that you can find on my YouTube channel. I just, I just love all types of music. So, of course, my favorite music grew up on rap music, grew up on rap music, grew up on R and B. But as I got older, some of the music that I really, really enjoyed was. The old stuff, man, the rock and roll as far as the rhythm and blues, the soulful music that came out 
starting off with Ray Charles and moving on to Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson and then moving on to James Brown and then moving on to Motown and then moving on to Otis Redding and Stacked Records and then moving on to Aretha Franklin and then moving on to Sly and the Family Stone and moving on with the great Motown artists of Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and Levi Stubbs and Tammy Terrell and Diana Ross, Smokey Robinson, Mary Wells, Jackie Wilson, as I mentioned before. All of these guys that had some type of connection with the Motown sound really enjoyed, loved the sound of Motown, loved the Temptations, loved the Tops, loved the Supremes, loved Martha and the Vandellas, loved Smokey and the Miracles, loved Marvin Gaye, loved Junior Walker and the All-Stars, loved Little Stevie Wonder, loved the Jackson 5. Love all those guys. Really do. Really do. Know a lot of their music, most of their music. But I just finished watching this documentary uh, on Showtime. It's called Hitville, The Making of Motown. It's something that came out, I believe, last August, and I've DVR'd it. And then, you know, tonight I was just watching it. And I mean, last night I was watching it, and I've watched it maybe four or five times. And I've watched documentaries also on Atlantic uh, Records and Stack Studios and Chess and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the, uh, the um, Fame Studio, Recording Studio down there. And... After watching what was going down with this Hitsville, the making of Motown in Showtime, it just got me thinking. It really did. And I know I've expressed it before. One of the things, as far as documentaries is concerned, I wish that I could talk to some of the top documentarians, if even that's a word, if Ken Burns is still around. I would just love to say again, as I mentioned it before on my last podcast, man, I just wish that there was a way that we could have some type of documentary, man. Somehow we can kind of get these old guys together or some of these young guys in terms of the, when they were still doing their thing. You know, Stevie Wonder, I know one of the um, uh, tops is still around. I know Otis Williams of The Temptations is still around. I mean, some of these guys were there, man. Some of these guys who were right there. I would just love to hear the stories. I would just love to hear the tales of these great black artists going on the road, going on the Chitlin circuit, going to these places where it's been segregated and just, just go ahead and performing and doing their thing and the relationships that they formed and the respect that they have for each other and some of the things that they admired about each other, not just as musicians, but as, musicians, but as men. You know, I would love to hear that cross-pollination in terms of, because when people talk about black music, they always kind of put it in, uh, during that time, I might add, when they talk about the black music, when they talk about the music of that era of coming from the black artists, when, again, you start with someone like a Ray Charles, who was one of the founding fathers of soul music, when we speak about someone like a Little Richard, who was one of the main foundations of what rock and roll, true rock and roll was all about before white folks, white folks took it and ruined it and stole it from us. But when you speak about those times, when you speak about James Brown, when you speak about um, Sam Cooke, when you speak about Solomon Burke, when you speak about Jackie Wilson, when you speak about these guys, when you speak about Bobby Womack and the Valentinos, when even when you get down to speaking about the origins of where soul music came from, when you speak about the origins of where true rock and roll came from, it's just, to me, always been intriguing and interesting to me. And that's one of the things where, yes, you've had documentaries about the history of quote-unquote rock and roll, and yet you've been breaking it down in terms of the different sections of soul music or black music, which started with Ray Charles, and it moved over to Motown, and then we talked about Southern Soul, and then we talked about Aretha Franklin, and then we talked about James Brown, and 
we've never had a documentary. We've never had anybody really speak about those artists blending together, performing together, going down south and dealing with the racism and the segregation and the prejudice together. We never really spoke about that. And that was one of the things, that's just one of the things I just wish we could kind of get to. If I had the time or the, I don't know, the avenue to go down where I could try to get this done, I would do it in a heartbeat because to me that is just interesting. I mean, to listen to, I mean, just to be able to listen to their stories, to be able to sit down with Mary Wilson or a Diana Ross or a Smokey Robinson or uh, or um, I don't know, who, uh, Curtis Mayfield's no longer with us, Isaac Hayes is no longer with us, Nina, Nina Simone is no longer with us, maybe sit down with a Tina Turner, maybe sit down with one of the Isley brothers, Percy Sledge is no longer with us, Etta James is no longer with us, Wilson Pickett is no longer with us, Solomon Burke is no longer with us, of course, Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye and Sam Cooke and Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin, they're no longer with us. James Brown is no longer with us. So basically what I'm saying is, is that there's a lot of like really good historical figures in the later half of the 21st century or the 20th century that were important in building the bridge and building the foundation for where black people are today as a society, as a community. I mean, we wouldn't be as far as we need to get as far as we need to go, as far as having to overcome the obstacles that are still being put in front of us in the year 2020, if you take a look at the piece of shit that's in the White House right now, just imagine how much more pain and suffering and heartache and how much further we would have to go to get where we need to go if it wasn't for the artists such as a Stevie Wonder or a James Brown or a Little Richard or a Chuck Berry or a... a, a, a Motown Records or Jerry Wessler or Sam and Dave, any of these guys who contributed to improving, to evolving this society that we live in to where, for the most part, if you have the money, if you're in the right neighborhood, if you're in the right part of town, regardless of skin or along as, 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 as color, race, creed or whatever, you can go to a certain school. You can go live in a certain neighborhood. You can in some parts of this country, date a, date a white woman without having fear of repercussions or any type of bodily physical harm in most places, in most occasions. But compared to what these guys were going through back in the day, what they had to go through just so we could have someone like President Obama be elected, not just to one term, but for two terms. And the progress that we've made in terms of integration, even though we're still too far even till even though we're still too segregated we're still too ignorant amongst each other's about what we know about each other and the way that we need to harmonize the way we need to come together the way that we need to unify the way that we need to be educated so we can live in peace amongst harmony and harmony amongst ourselves what these guys did what al bell did what booker t dmgs did what rufus thomas did with all of these guys don covey what all of these guys did man i'm telling you thank you so much Thank you so doggone much. So, woo, I just wanted to get that off my chest. I know it had nothing to do with sports, but I don't care, man. It was just a situation where it's almost like I'm talking to you right now and I'm lying back on the couch. And it's almost like you're sitting there with a pen and paper in hand with the, with, the, with the fancy suit on and you're telling me, okay, Wendell, where did it all start? Tell me about when you were young, exactly what happened. Did your dad do anything to you? Did your mom do anything to you? Did your neighbor do anything to you? Did it? 
bully at school? Did a teacher do anything to you? Where did this Where did this all begin? Take me way, way back. Hey, man, my dad was a guy who loved jazz. My dad, my dad was a guy who always played blues. He always played John Lee Hooker, and he always played the good stuff. So that's how I was first introduced to this type of music. It was from my parents. It was from my mother and my father. But, um, yeah, man, I just saw this thing. I just saw this thing about rock and roll, man. I just saw the thing about Motown. It's really interesting because if you take a look at it, if you take a look at the Motown sound and then you equate that to what was happening at Stax and you equate that with what was happening at Chess Records and you equate that to what was happening with James Brown and Aretha Franklin coming in later and Sam Cooke who started the whole ball rolling. Everybody wants to sit here and talk about Barry Gordy, Barry Gordy, Barry Gordy. Yes, Barry Gordy finding Motown and doing what he was doing with Motown was fantastic, was unbelievable, was Great, no doubt about it. But if it wasn't for what Sam Cooke did and taking the first step to show black people that guess what? You can go ahead and own your own records. You can go ahead and start your own record label. If it wasn't for Sam Cooke and the fact that he did that and was successful doing it, then there would not have been a Motown. So Sam Cooke, my, my heroes in terms of musical artists are concerned will always be guys like Sam Cooke and Otis Redding. I remember telling you on a um, podcast a couple of couple of podcasts ago, the, as of right now, I'm just really digging the Four Tops, man. I'm just, all, everything is Four Tops, Four Tops, Four Tops. I've listened to Bernadette. I've listened to Still Waters Run Deep. I've listened to every live performance over in Europe by the um, Four Tops. I mean, that's all I've been doing. In fact, I'm quite sure Levi Stubbs and Obi Benson and, those guys are up there in heaven talking about Wendell. Jeez, give me a rest, will you? If I have to hear Sugar Pie Honey Bunch one more time, I'm going to come back down to earth and turn it off and slap you in the face. Good Lord. <laughs> Jeez. Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Get, go, to the YouTube, go to YouTube and type in Sugar Pie Honey Bunch Live when they were in Europe, where they were in uh, Paris, France. Man, Levi Stubbs was something else, man. Levi Stubbs, what a singer. What a performer. Man, both, all those guys. But getting back, so that's what I was really been digging on for the last couple of days. That's what I've really been talking about in terms of just my absolute love for music, man. My absolute love for this kind of music and the absolute love for the stories that I've been listening to and I've been hearing through these documentaries. When, again, you're talking about, I saw the documentary on James Brown. I saw the documentary on Sam Cooke. I saw the documentary on Ray Charles. I saw the documentary many times. I'm a complete expert when it comes to the life and times and music of Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. But I've been, over the last couple of days, multiple times, been watching some documentaries on Motown. I've been watching some documentaries, again, on Aretha Franklin. I've been watching some documentaries just on black music and what it meant in the 60s moving up to the 70s. So, I don't know, man. You could almost say this is like my birthday present. I got my birthday coming up in a couple of days. So, this is almost like my way of letting me... This is my, this, this is your present for me to listen to what I'm putting down in terms of my thoughts and my passions, my feelings about the Motown sound, about Otis Redding, about Sam Cooke, about what was happening back in the day. Because I was always like, man, you know, thinking to myself, like, man, wouldn't that be something? Because if 
for instance, and I know the sounds are different because you really couldn't equate. One of the things that I think gets underrated, that gets overlooked in terms of the importance of us moving in the society for blacks and whites, our communities to form, to integrate, how we've become a little bit better with that. The story of Stax Records is just unbelievable. The story of Stax Records is just Everybody talks about Motown, Motown, Motown. Yes, Motown was fantastic. But what was going down at Stax Records, where you had the house band, Booker T and the MGs, where you had two Southern white boys, and then you had two black guys, Otis, uh, excuse me, uh, Booker T. Jones on the organ, Al Jackson Jr. on the drums, Duck Dunn on the bass, Steve Cropper on the rhythm guitar, and then you had the Marquis that was also integrated with Andrew Love and Wayne Jackson. So... This was down in fucking Memphis, Tennessee, man. This was in Memphis fucking Tennessee, where back in the 60s, nothing was segregated. Nothing was integrated. Nothing. Nothing. You couldn't walk in a white neighborhood if you were black. You couldn't go in a white neighborhood if you were black without being lynched, without being beaten up, without being murdered, without being harassed. You couldn't do any of those things. There was no mingling among the races in Memphis, Tennessee. It was fucking Memphis, Tennessee in the 60s. Wasn't too much of a difference in Memphis, Tennessee than it was in Birmingham, Alabama, or any place in Mississippi, or any place in Louisiana, or any place in Florida, or any place in North Carolina or South Carolina. It was the same damn thing. And here you have in this black ghetto on Macklemore, 1926 East Macklemore Avenue, a guy who owned the place was named Jim Stewart, a guy who was a fiddler. A white guy named Jim Stewart who was a fiddler player. He knew nothing about rhythm and blues. He knew nothing about black music. But he wanted to be a country and western guy. So the only place that he could buy as far as the recording studio was concerned was this old, run-down, beat-up, dilapidated movie theater on 1926 East Macklemore in the black neighborhood of town. He's like, well, I mean, that's the only place I can get it. I guess that's where I got to go. And it was a situation where people just started coming in. People just started, the folks from the neighborhood just started coming in. And Jim Stewart and his sister Estelle Axon had the, I guess, the fortitude or the forward thinking to say, let's see what these guys got. And when Rufus Thomas and with his daughter Carla Thomas came in and guys like Booker T. Jones and all these other musicians came in and started doing their thing, I mean, that's when everything started. That's when the Stacks name started and Carla Thomas had a little bit of a hit with Baby and Booker T and the MGs came out with Green Onions and that sold really well but it wasn't until Otis Redding, it wasn't until The Legend, it wasn't until My Man, it wasn't until My Musical Idol, it wasn't until one of the guys that when I get to heaven after I've been to my parents and my grandparents and spent some time and get to know them and be reunited with my mom and dad after that goes on. The person that I want to see, the person that I want to meet, the person I want to shake his hand, the person I want to bow down to, one of the top five, along with Malcolm, along with Sam Cooke, and along with Sonny Liston, is going to be Otis Redding. When he showed up for Stack Studios, and when he showed up in that studio with Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers, and many people thought he was just a roadie, because Johnny Jenkins was the guy that was supposed to be the one, the main guy that was supposed to be recording music, and they started playing the song, and those guys were like, boring, boring, Johnny doesn't have it. And then Al Jackson was like, hey, Steve, could you do me a favor? Hey, man, could you get this guy on the mic, the roadie, who came in here, who was setting up the equipment? Could you 
could you just get him off my back for a few minutes? All this guy's been doing is talking about, I'm a singer, I'm a singer, I'm a singer. And he's like really getting on my nerves. So do you mind just kind of, just kind of bearing this burden for me? Oh yeah, sure, sure. So the person that Al Jackson was talking about was, man, could you just get this motherfucker away from me? The person that he was talking about was Otis Redding. And there was a little bit of time left in the recording studio. The recording studio still had a little bit of time left, so they were just like, all right, let's just appease this guy. Let's get him on the mic, whatever, whatever. So the first song Otis Redding sang was something like, he sounded like Little Richard, and everybody was like, yeah, great. Uh, another guy trying to sound like a Little Richard. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, can we go now? I've got some things to do. i got a gig this tonight at the Plantation Inn, and you know, I got a night gig over at the club that I got to be at. Do you mind if I just get out of here? Because, I mean, you know, I mean, this guy, this Otis, what's his name again? Otis Reading? Well, yeah, yeah, whatever. This guy ain't, this guy ain't nothing, man. He's just singing some bullshit Little Richard. He's just a Little Richard wannabe. Can I get the fuck out of here? And they were like, wait a minute. He's got a ballad. Oh, he's got a ballad. Wonderful. Okay, well, here we go. What key do you want to know this? I don't know, man. Just play me them church chords. I'll just play you them church chords. Okay. All right, here we go. And a one, and a two, and a three. And then he played this. These arms are mine. something here now legend will tell you steve cropper and those guys will tell you that those guys flipped out and everybody lost their minds and everybody was like oh my god this this, that and the other according to facts it wasn't like that i mean they were impressed they were like wow something a little bit different but it wasn't like oh my god this guy's gonna become a legend this guy's gonna become a superstar it wasn't anything like that it was enough for those guys to say okay all right well you know johnny jenkins you can go but yeah, at least with this song, we might have something here. We might have something that we can work with. And that's how the oldest Reddings thing started. And he just kept coming back and he got back on and he got on the road. I mean, his manager, Phil and Alan Walden, but, you know, he started from ground zero, Otis. He started playing in, for college fraternities and started basically from the bottom where no one knew him. And this guy was just a working musician in terms that he would go to Stacks, he would record. 
He recorded Respect. He recorded Pain in My Heart. He recorded uh, Just One Day. He recorded and recorded and recorded, and then he would just go out on the road. And it was just a matter of, you know, he hustled, he worked, he was relentless, and then eventually his fame started growing and growing and growing and growing. And it wasn't until he died that he really got his first number one pop hit sitting at the dock of the bay, which, you know, I think is, I like it, it's cool, it's good, but if you think, for me, sitting at the dock of the bay is cool, but for me, I like songs like These Arms of Mine, Respect, uh, Try a Little Tenderness, which was his closing song for every show. So before he decided he was going to go to pop back in 1967 when he died, I still like the soulfulness of Otis Redding, which again, it was Southern soul. This was a guy who was born in Dawson, Georgia, moved to Macon, Georgia, and even when he got rich, even when he became successful, even when he you know, became a highly successful artist, this was a guy who didn't move out to L.A. like Ray Charles and Sam Cooke and Little Richard and others. This was a guy who didn't move to the East Coast and live in a quote-unquote urban, more black area of the country. This was a guy who was going to remain in Georgia. This was a guy who was going to set up his roots, and he was going to own a big plot of land and become a working farmer in the state of Georgia, in Macon, Georgia. So that kind of showed you the type of person, the type of band that Otis Redding was back in the 60s, where he's talking about, yeah, I want to move out to the sticks of Macon, Georgia, Round Oak, Georgia, and get myself a farm, get myself farm area out there. I mean, there you go. That just shows you the type of man that Otis Redding was. He was country. He was 100% country, and he had no problem with it. As he said in Tramp, when Carla Thomas said, you country, he said, that's all right. I'm straight from the Georgia woods. That's good. So that was what Otis Redding was all about. So, again, you have that type of personality. You have that type of character. You have that type of guy. When I say that type of character, I mean someone who is so strong and devoted in and devoted to his roots that, you know, he wasn't going to do what many Southern folks did, like James Brown and get the fuck out of the South. No, he remained in the South. James Brown came back later on and he lived in Augusta. But uh, James, but uh, Otis Redding was still going to be a guy that was always going to stay in the South. So I'm just thinking to myself, man, Otis Redding, how, how would that, how would a, how would a concert or how would a show with Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson, Ray Charles, and Marvin Gaye sound? Or how would a sound or how would a concert like Otis Redding, Nita Simone, Etta James, Tina Turner, and the Supremes and a couple of more Motown acts, how would that sound? I mean, wouldn't that be something? How would those guys interact? You can't tell me. A good-looking man like Otis Redding, that Mary Wilson and Florence Ballard wouldn't have been like, hey, Otis, what's happening? Of course, Otis at the time was married to Carla Thomas, but, I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm just saying, you don't think Diana Ross just got around a little bit? She messed around a little bit? You don't think maybe she could have got a little bit with Otis Redding? Come on now, come on. You know my man has got to be, I mean, he was like that now. Come on. I mean, Otis had that charm. Otis had them good looks, according to the women. Ask his, ask his wife, Zelma, good-looking man. She was like, hey, you know what? I didn't care that girls were talking about how cute and how good-looking Otis Redding was. You're damn right. I ain't going to be marrying no ugly man. Shoot, if 
oldest for some ugly guy and no one wanted them, I would have to kind of ask myself, well, damn, what's my taste in men then? I mean, the fact that I've got these women out there swooning and talking about how gorgeous and good looking that man was, shit. <laughs> He's the man, I'm the woman, got that damn right. So, yeah, man, I mean, you know, women love themselves the Otis Redding. So I'm just thinking to myself, woo, Otis with Mary Wells, Otis getting out. And when I say Otis with this, that, the other, I'm not talking about from a sexual standpoint, but I'm just talking about from the interactions, maybe a little bit of flirtation, just the way them were interacting, you know, because after the show was over, just speaking about them folks being in the urban areas, you know, they go out to parties, they go out to clubs, I mean, you know, listen to other folks. I mean, how was it that, you know, if Otis would have, say, met someone like a Timmy Terrell, someone is like a like a Flo Ballard. See, that's what I'm talking about, man. I've got to get them. I, I, those are the stories I want to get to. I want to get to them type of stories. So same thing with Sam Cooke, man. Sam Cooke came off the gospel circuit. Sam Cooke was a guy who was one of the main guys who led the migration from being just a, that, you know, being a gospel singer to being a soulful singer. To being a pop singer, a guy who can make money, you know, doing pop records. Because Sam started off in the Soulsters. When R.H. Harris, who was at that time, I mean, with black kids or black folks, I mean, he was the band. He was the superstar. But for the majority of black artists, it was mainly gospel. I mean, you had Harry Belafonte, you had Nat King Cole, you had some others who were singing outside of that realm. Of course, you have folks like Sammy Davis and others who were entertainers, but for the most part, one of the biggest stars in the black community were the gospel singers. And at that time, the biggest star, one of the biggest stars, were were the Soulsters and their lead singer, R.A. Cheris, who would sing stuff like this. So you see, you hear that, and if you listen to Sam Cooke, and Sam Cooke does the whoa, 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 when you hear that on his on his pop songs, or even in his gospel songs, he's imitating R.H. Harris. R.H. Harris was the man. He was the guy. So when R.H. Harris left, because he said that, you know, what's gospel music is getting a little too secular, and getting a little bit away too much from the Lord, and this, that, the other, and of course the rumor was that, now that was bullshit, he wasn't leaving the Soulsters because of that nonsense, he was leaving because he had about four or five paternity suits coming on for his ass, and you know, he had to get the hell out of town, that was the real reason R.A. Cheris start, uh, left the Soulsters, there was no coincidence that after the heat died down on that, he started his own group again after a year or two uh, from uh, being on the DL. So, you know, that was where that came from, rumor has it. But, you know, Sam took over from the Soulsters. He said, Jesus gave me water, which was the biggest hit that the Soulsters ever had. And it was like, okay, well, guess what? We have ourselves a new star, and his name is Sam Cook. So 
for the next eight, nine, ten years, that was Cook was doing. He was doing the Chitlin circuit. He was doing the the gospel circuit, and he figured that you know what, man, I've been up here like eight, nine, ten years, and you know, I'm really not. I'm kind of stagnating. You know, I'm just kind of sitting here and not getting any further. I'm not making any more money. I'm not being any more popular. I need to kind of get out and just kind of cross over, as they say. But in the black community, you know, Ray Charles went through this too. Ray Charles was the first one to kind of move away from, you know, oh my goodness, you're singing the devil's music and you're, you know, you're going to burn in hell and you're selling your soul and all that bullshit. But, um, so, so Ray Charles was the first one who did that. But Ray Charles wasn't a superstar in the gospel circuit, in the gospel field that Sam Cooke was. So when Sam left the gospel uh, side of things, the gospel music scene, and he recorded a pop record, oh my goodness gracious, because he tried a pop record, lovable, my girl, she's lovable. That came from lovable, God is lovable. So they were like, wait a minute, hold on for a second. And he tried to, with the lovable song, he came out of Dale Cook. They were like, wait a minute, Dale Cook, my ass. Fuck bullshit, that's Sam Cook. What the fuck, what the, trying to play me like that? Yeah, I know that voice. I know that, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know that bullshit. That's Sam Cook. He's up there trying to pass and being Dale Cook. Get the fuck out of here. So basically, he was ostracized for a long time from the, from the gospel community from the gospel circuit because they were all like, man, you're selling pop records, man. You're selling yourself to the devil. You're singing, singing that devil's music. But when he hit with You Send Me and that went to number one and that went on Ed Sullivan and the younger folks that were following him all of a sudden were swooning and cheering and yelling and screaming and shouting and dancing with uh, everybody like the cha-cha-cha and all these other songs that he just kept coming up with. Boom, 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 boom. Hit after hit after hit after hit. All of a sudden, them young cats saw what Sam Cooke was doing. Oh, and by the way, them young cats who went on to become um, who went on to become Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson and Otis Redding and Stevie Wonder and Martha and the Vandellas and all of these other guys who we know now as superstars today who idolized Sam Cooke. When they found that, wait a minute, this guy's singing pop music and the heavens ain't opening up and or the, the ground isn't opening up below and the devil ain't reaching down to, to bring him down to the internal damnation. Wait a minute, the heavens ain't going to open up. He, he isn't going to be struck by lightning. He isn't going to just humanly combust when he starts talking about, girl, I love you and girl, I want to be with you and girl, you're so pretty and girl, you're this and woman, you're that. Wait a minute, you're trying to try to tell me that my soul doesn't have to be damned for life or, or for all eternity. And on top of that, I can get girls swooning over me. I can make a whole bunch of money doing this also and become rich and famous. Well, shit, here we go. So long gospel circuit. I seem like I got myself another avenue to go down. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing me to do this. So that was the whole start, man. That was the whole deal. That was the whole thing as far as with really the the new wave of what would have been gospel singers all of a sudden now bringing in a pipeline of talent from Detroit and from Mississippi and from Memphis and from Chicago because now there was another avenue. Ray Charles showed us there's one way to get there. Little Richard showed us there was a way to get there. Now Sam Cooke showed us the way to get there. So that was all this folks, that's where all these folks were coming from, man. Damn, that's where all those folks were coming from. So 
Again, I don't know. I just I'm just right now just flowing, man. I'm just speaking. I'm just talking. I'm just educating. I'm just don't know where I'm going, but all I know is I'm going where I want to go. But you know, this Motown thing. This is what this is what happens sometimes when I just watch this stuff and I get jacked up and I just get you know I'm feeling good, but I want to get this out. You know, I just I, I want to release some of the stuff that I just saw. It was interesting because they were talking about what Barry Gordy was. He fashioned his studio Motown or his record label Motown after the uh, Ford company in terms of, or the General Motors or whatever that the, the, whatever the industry is over there in Detroit, where it was, you know, the, you bring in the car or the car begins as just an idea then you pull in this, and then it goes to another department. And you pull in the tires, and then it goes to another department. You pull in the engines, and they go to another department. And you pull in the the um, the windshield, and you pull in another department. So basically, when it goes from department to department to department to department, and then by the time it comes out, you got yourself a brand new car. So Barry Gordy was like, "Well, shit, I can kind of do that with uh, singers. I can take an artist. I can have a department where it's nothing but." songwriters then i can have another department where nothing but musicians and then i can have another department where nothing but quality control people to tell me if the record's going to be good or not and then i can have another department where you know we can kind of do the harmonies and so that's what happened i mean so you had holland dozier holland who was the production team along with and, and ashford and simpson and and some others and Smokey robinson was a songwriter and then you had the House band was led by James Jamerson and the, the, the Funk Brothers, and they would kind of do their thing. So it was a situation where the Funk Brothers were, you know, the, the writing team would come up with an idea. They would take it over to the Funk Brothers who would come up with the melody. Then you take it over to the songwriter who would make up the words for it. And then you bring it over to the artist and they would sing it. And then as soon as they would sing it, they would go ahead and maybe take it to another part of the production area and maybe put in some strings, maybe put some sweetener in it. When you say put in some strings and put in a little orchestra and then maybe bring it back and take it over to the background singers and then they would go ahead and put some stuff into it. And then you take it over to the producer and they remix it and bring it down and make it polished and make it nice. And then you take that over to quality control and quality control will say whether this was a hit or not. And if you got past all of those things, then the record would go out. And that was with My Girl, with The Temptations, and Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, with The, with, um, the Four Tops, and Heat Wave, with Martha and the Vandellas, and Tracks of My Tears, with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and Oh Baby Give Me One More Chance, uh, with the Jackson Five, and, and Shotgun with Junior Walker and the All-Stars, and then Stop in the Name of Love with the Supremes. I mean, none of these folks, none of the artists, none of these great Wonderful, fabulous, talented artists were were songwriters at the beginning. Now, later on, Marvin Gaye became a songwriter for his own stuff. Stevie Wonder became a songwriter for his own stuff. The, the Four Tops, when they left Motown and went to Casablanca Rock Records, they started into getting and writing some of their own material. But for the most part, you're speaking about the Supremes never wrote any of their music. Um... You know, Junior Walker never wrote any of his music. They might have had, some might have had an idea maybe, but in terms of with the music and the melody and the production and everything else, I mean, that was all strictly the production of Motown. So which always makes me think is that when you take a look at these great artists, and no doubt about it, they were great artists. When you look at the roster, when you look at the lineup from Motown, but it's like, you know, for me, it's just Otis. 
because Otis wrote his music, man. Otis did everything. He didn't have to go to charm school where he had to learn how to walk and talk because you're going to be on these white shows. You're going to be in front of these white people and you need to act like this and you need to walk like this and you need to talk like that and this, that, and the other. You know, that's, that's fine. And, you know, you take a look at a Motown group and great, man, because, you know, they were promoting their stuff. They were bringing this stuff out to mainly appease white folks, which is cool. And because those guys were so great at what they did, because the musicians were so talented, because the songwriting teams were so extraordinary, because the artists were so uh, otherworldly, the fact it didn't matter if it was quote-unquote bubblegum soul or bubblegum pop or whatever you want to call it, cleanse it, cleanse it down, wash it up pop or whatever you want to call whatever Motown was, appeasing, trying to appease mainly the white folks. The artists were so good. The music was so good. The production was so good. The writing was so good that it really didn't make any difference. White, black, Asian, Hispanic, it didn't matter. The music was so doggone good because everybody was so talented that it worked. It worked. You couldn't have done that with average musicians. You probably couldn't have gotten away with that in the black community with just good musicians during that time. The fact that those guys were so fucking good and talented and just so awesome as performers and artists and songwriters and singers and producers and musicians, it worked. It worked. It really did work. But again, you give me Otis Redding. You give me Otis Redding. I still like the sax, the stacks story better. Booker T and the MGs weren't as good as the Funk Brothers. As much as I love Donald Duck Dunn on the bass, love Duck Dunn, he ain't no James Jamerson. And I'm quite sure the fact that the only two guys still living from Booker T and the MGs, Steve Cropper and Booker T. Jones, they'd probably tell you, no, we couldn't have matched up with uh, the Funk Brothers. I mean, we didn't have that. But then again, I mean, you're talking about the Funk Brothers also have the advantage of having a lot more musicians and also having an orchestra in a string. String, uh, they had an orchestra behind them for some of the songs that they made. If you listen to My Girl, My Girl went through the writing of Smokey Robinson and then the Funk Brothers and the musician, and then it got passed along, and they put in strings, they put in all these, of these different types of other instruments, the oboes and the clarinets and all this other stuff. Stacks didn't have the ability to do any of that stuff. They had an alto sax, another trumpet, and another sax, and then you had a bass, rhythm, guitar, drum, organ. And Isaac Hayes would sometimes play the piano. That's it. That's all you got. <laughs> Otis Redding didn't have the advantage of having backup singers or background singers. He didn't have the advantage of having an orchestra to help him with Mr. Pitiful or, or any of the mother songs that he put out. Didn't have that. And Otis wrote his own songs. Otis, Otis didn't have a songwriting team. He had Steve Cropper help him write some songs and give him some ideas. And he was a guy that wasn't afraid to cover songs. He covered Stand By Me by Benny King. He's covered a lot of Sam Cooke songs. He covered um, uh, Day Tripper by the Beatles. He's covered My Girl by The Temptations. So he was a guy who covered songs, but, you know, he didn't have a... He didn't go into stacked record and sit there and say, okay, hey, you know, uh, song, uh, Dave, those guys didn't come up to him and sit there talking about, hey, Otis, I got a hit, I got a hit. Sometimes they did. I mean, Knock on Wood, written by Eddie Floyd and Steve Cropper. Baby, I want to knock do, 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 on wood. Baby, that, I mean, that was originally written for Otis Redding, but those Eddie Floyd singing so great, it was like, why don't you, why don't you take it? <laughs> I mean, you sing it well enough, so he took it. It was a hit. 
But for the most part, I mean, Stax was nothing more than a recording studio. Motown was a record label. So when you had an artist, I don't know if Otis Redding even could have worked as great and as legendary and as fantastic as I think Otis Redding was. I don't think he could have worked as, at uh, Motown in terms of, I don't think that he could have been the success that he became at Motown. I just don't think that he fit. I mean, I think that Holland Dozier Holland and the writers, they could have written anything for anybody. I, I, and I think Otis could have adjusted somewhat to any form of music, but it just wouldn't have fit. I mean, it was such a natural connection for what Otis was putting down and the chemistry that he had with the musicians in the area that he went to that I don't think that it could have gone anywhere else. Just like, just like Sam and Dave. You don't know that I know. Hold on, I'm coming. Soul Man. I mean, you bring those guys to Motown, that, that wouldn't have worked. And Sam and Dave were a group that say, David Porter and Sam Moore, those guys weren't, uh, weren't songwriters. I mean, you know, Isaac Hayes and them boys and David Porter, those guys had to write the songs and be right in front of them. When they were recording, David Porter, one of the songwriters, the team of Porter and Isaac Hayes, those guys were right in front of their faces saying, come on, give it to me. You know, when they were singing the song, I mean, they were making facial expressions, you know, talking about, I need more, 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 down, 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 emotion, 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 give it to me from the gut, 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 gut. I mean, he was doing those type of things. So, you know, I don't think that that would have worked for Sam and Dave going up to Motown and being part of that quote-unquote machine. Same thing with, well, you know, James Brown, the, the alpha male that James Brown was. You think he's going to, you think anybody was going to tell James Brown what to sing? You think anybody was going to tell James Brown how to sing a song? You think anybody was going to tell James Brown, this is a song I want you to sing? You think James Brown, you think anybody's going to tell James Brown to do anything? Back when James Brown was, even before James Brown became James Brown? Shit, nah, that definitely would not have worked. And, you know, same thing with Aretha Franklin. You think anybody from Motown was going to tell Aretha Franklin how to sing a song? Or you think someone was going to tell Aretha Franklin to go to charm school? Yeah, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And, of course, Sam Cooke and others, you know that was, you know, that'd be like a son trying to tell his father what to do. Not happening. Ain't happening. So it's just that dynamic, you know. How would Diana Ross, after she left the Supremes, what happened she said, fuck it, Barry, I'm just tired of you trying to control my career and telling me what to do and, walk this way and talk this way and act this way and sing this way and now you got me singing Roger and Hammerstein songs and now you're trying to got me singing opera songs and you got me singing show tunes you got me trying to be like the black female Frank Sinatra and all this nonsense you're trying to get me to you know polish my act and have me play at the Copacabana and the Ed Sullivan show and Vegas and all of these other type of deals. No, uh -uh, Barry, I'm a soul singer. I want to be like Ella James. I want to be like Nita Simone. I want to be like Aretha. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Could you imagine, for instance, if that scenario actually happened? Could you see Diana Ross with a, with a stack sound? Could you see... Diana Ross with an Aretha Franklin sound. Could you imagine if Diana Ross, who was from Motown, lived in, she was from Detroit, lived in Detroit. Could you imagine her going over to Aretha saying, Aretha, let's collaborate. Could you write me something? Could you do something for me? Could you write, just write me something? Or do you mind if I take, you know, Do Right Woman? Do you mind if I take some of them songs after, after off the first 
album that you made for Atlantic Records, which basically launched you into superstardom and you never looked back. Could, could Do you mind if I sing one of them songs? Do you think Diana Ross could pull that off? Do you think when Flo Ballard left the Supremes after she got kicked out when she was done wrong, even though a lot of it was her fault also, but could you imagine if Flo Ballard, after she got kicked off by the Supremes and out of Motown, if she went down to Rick Hall and the fame recording down there in Muscle Shoals, Alabama and said, do me something. I want something gritty. I want something funky. I want something dirty in terms of the music, gritty, grimy, something that you gave Percy Sledge, something that you gave uh, one of those guys, give me something like that. Could you imagine Flo Ballard doing something like that? Could you imagine Flo Ballard going to Jerry Westler at Atlantic and saying, give me something, do me something in terms of giving me something good to, to sing? I don't know. I don't know. Could you imagine her going to Curtis Mayfield and saying, give me something? I want to sing the type of stuff. I want to go in the direction that you're going in with Curtis Mayfield was with, was, uh, with the impressions. Could you imagine that? That would be, mm, 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 mm. Could you imagine him being, her being with James Brown? Now, I don't think back in the day, any woman would have been a good deal with James Brown. James was a little, uh, shall we say, nuts, uh, a little possessive, a uh, little... Um, Hitting women, not the good thing to do. The beatdown that she gave, the, that he gave Tammy Terrell, not good, not good. But, um, yeah, man, I just, those are the things I want, man. Those are the things that I'm talking about, man. And you're talking about the 1960s. I was on a text message with folks today, and we were just talking about how absolutely gorgeous that Tammy Terrell and Mary Wells and Mary Wilson was, and how absolutely sexy and good-looking and attractive that Flo Ballard was. I mean, people sit there and want to talk about Marilyn Monroe. Hey, Marilyn Monroe was a good-looking woman, no doubt about it. But Marilyn Monroe's presence is heightened by the fact that she died young. She died when she was 36. So we never got the opportunity to see Marilyn Monroe look at old age. We never saw, we never got the opportunity to see Marilyn Monroe look when she was, if she was going to be 60 or 70 or 80. So Marilyn Monroe, that picture of her, Everlasting will always be one of gorgeousness because, again, she died young. But I don't care, man. Yeah, Marilyn Monroe, good-looking woman. Jane Man, James Manfield, sexy as hell. But you give me Mary Wells, you give me Flo Ballard, you give me Tammy Terrell, and you give me Mary Wilson Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, on morning, noon, night, and even in the midnight hour. And I'll reserve Sundays for... Marilyn Monroe, James Manfield, and Dorothy Dandridge. Other than that, you can give me Tammy Terrell on Monday, Tuesday. You can give me Flo Ballard on Wednesday, Thursday. You can give me Mary Wells on Friday and Saturday. Whatever and whatever they want to do with me, have at it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just some good stuff, man. How long have I been talking on this subject, by the way? Damn! Almost an hour? Shit, let me get out of here. Let me end this, baby. So I want to thank you very much for listening to the program a lot of good stuff today a lot of good stuff again for those who have listened hey thank you very much it's my birthday in a couple of days so for you listening just say that's your birthday present to me huh and if this coronavirus thing keeps me a little bit more indoors than i want to be and i feel like talking to you about what i want to do in the next 365 days with my life if i can make it that long well, don't be surprised if you see another podcast like this again at the in the near future. But I will be speaking about what's going down in the world of sports. After all, right, we've got the NFL draft to uh, be talking about. So I'm going to be highly, highly into that. But 
as I mentioned before, I just saw this thing with Motown Records. It's called Hitsville, The Making of Motown. It's on Showtime. As I said, I DVR'd it, but if you can get your hands on it, and if you're and if you love music, and if you really enjoy music, and hell, if you just like music and just the history of it, you know, I'm a history buff. I love the shit about, you know, the, the presidents of the 19th and 18th century, man. I love the shit about what we became as a nation, how we became as a as the United States of America, man. I love the shit. I love the stuff about the Vietnam War and civil rights and and all of this stuff, man. The civil War. I mean, I love all that stuff. Thank God for the History Channel. But uh, so, you know, this is just another thing as far as in that department that I actually just love, love, love talking about with a passion, as you can tell, as we're almost reaching an hour on this stuff. So I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Music. <laughs>